0: Welcome back. We are going to be discussing the Great Depression, the beginnings, and the Herbert Hoover administration's response to the Great Depression. This is an economic crisis that the United States experiences during the late 1920s, the likes of which had never been seen before, nor seen since. And we are going to focus mainly on Hoover and the government's response to this depression. The first question, it really begins with, Herbert Hoover and whether or not he was too conservative. Uh, We've had two Republican presidents before him that were very laissez-faire, hands-off, conservative presidents with the economy. Uh, They were focused on uh, somewhat protective tariffs and keeping taxes low. And the prosperity of the 1920s, especially in the city, is masking some very deep-rooted problems that are taking place and that are all going to come to a head during this time period. There are several key industries that come in trouble in the late 1920s, such as railroads, textiles, steel, they're barely making a profit at this point, whereas mining, lumbering, uh, they expanded during the war and they are no longer in high demand because the war has ended. We're speaking about World War I. Coal was also hard hit due to the availability of new energy sources. Um, you probably recall electricity and all the new things we're able to do with that. We also have booming industries like the automobile, the construction of new homes and consumer goods that are now starting to decline and grow weaker. And we also have a decline that's beginning in the housing department and development. But none of these are hurt as bad as the farmers. During World War I, the international demand for U.S. grain uh, shot through the roof. But after the war, prices have dropped by 40% or more. Farmers tried to boost production so they can sell more to offset the prices that they're losing, but this only drops the price even further. As the farm incomes decline, farmers start to default on loans and rural banks start to fail. The price supports are attempted by government to buy up surplus crops to guarantee certain prices and that farmers don't lose a whole lot of money on farm, on materials and goods they've already planted. Uh, but. Calvin Coolidge as president vetoes the price support bill. The consumers are also starting to have less money to spend. People buy less due to rising prices. Their wages are not rising, they're stagnant, and credit debts are increasing as well. Many people have begun living on credit since the wages are stagnant and there's plenty of things to buy. People have been buying goods on credit where you buy it now, pay for it later, or pay for it as you can as you go. Businesses are giving easy credits to consumers and they're piling up large debts. Consumers also have trouble paying off debt and have to cut back on spending. We are also faced with, in the 1920s, an uneven distribution of income. In the 1920s, the rich are getting even richer and the poor are getting even poorer. 70% of families earn less than minimum for a decent standard of living in the 1920s, and most of the people in the United States cannot afford the flood of goods that are being produced from factories and on the market. In 1928, the Democrats are attempting to elect Alfred E. Smith, who is the four-time governor of New York. He's running against Herbert Hoover, and as you can see on the map on your screen, Hoover wins, wins by an overwhelming victory. He also brings with him dreams of riches in the stock market. The Dow Jones Industrial Average, it tracks the state of stocks in the stock market. And in 1920s, the stock prices are rising steadily, and people see this. They begin to rush to buy stocks and bonds. Many people also engage in speculation, where they hope to buy a chance on a quick profit. And we also have buying on margin, where you pay a small percent of a price and borrow the rest of the money now for the purposes of this class my definition of buying on margin and the stock market and this lecture are going to be very uh, very vague and general in details we'll get more specific once we're in class so we can talk and ask questions so feel free to write those questions down and bring them with you um, it's not long until black Tuesday happens September 1929 stock prices peak And then they fall, and they fall quite dramatically, as you can see on my next slide. By October 29, or Black Tuesday, the market, the nation's confidence is plummeting. Shareholders begin to sell frantically. Millions of these shares have no buyers. People who bought on credit are now left with huge debts, and others lose most of their life savings. The Great Depression also, as the economy plummets, unemployment begins to skyrocket. It lasts from 1929 to 1940. After the stock market crash, people begin to panic and withdraw their money from the banks. Banks that invested in stocks fail. People lose their life savings and their money. From 1929 to 1930, the gross national product cuts nearly in half. 90,000 businesses go bankrupt. 1933, 25% of workers are jobless, those with jobs get cuts in hours as well as pay. The worldwide shockwaves are experienced. The Great Depression limits the United States' ability to import European goods. The Halley-Smoot tariff sets the highest protective tariff ever experienced in the United States. Other countries cannot earn American currency to buy U.S. goods. International trade drops. Unemployment soars around the world. So you understand, this was not just a United States phenomenon, in the Great Depression. It was a worldwide event, and it actually had been going on in Europe even before it came to the United States. Some of the f- causes of the Great Depression, there are many factors that lead into it. Most people assume that the stock market crash is what caused the Great Depression. It wasn't the cause. It was more the indicator that the Depression was beginning and that things were going bad. But tariffs, along with war debts, farming problems, and easy credit income disparity, are just to name a few, the federal government was keeping interest rates low to encourage borrowing. All of this accumulates into the Great Depression, and it really leads to suffering at all levels. Beginning in the cities, the people have lost jobs, they are evicted from their homes. We have these shanty towns, which are settlements consisting of shacks that begin to arise. We'll n- later name them Hoovervilles. People begin to dig through the garbage, they beg for food. We have soup kitchens that are established, the one pictured here, I believe, is uh, sponsored by none other than Al Capone, and they offer free, low-cost food. Bread lines line up for food from charities and public agencies. Uh, Meanwhile, the minorities, African Americans and Latinos, have even higher unemployment and lower pay than what everyone else is experiencing in the Great Depression. In rural areas, most of the farmers are okay because they can at least grow their own food, but about 400,000 farms are lost due to foreclosure proceedings and the inability to pay back their debts to banks that um, have given them their mortgage. To top all of this off, in the 1930s, we have a massive dust bowl. The farmers in the Great Plains regions have exhausted the land through overproduction and tilling the soil and lack of irrigation. And in the nineteen thirties, this drought and windstorms hit simultaneously, and soil is scattered for hundreds of miles. The Dust Bowl covers an area from roughly North Dakota to Texas that is hardest hit. Many of the families migrate across the Pacific coast across to the Pacific Coast states. The family is not spared from hardship either. The family is the source of strength for most Americans. They think that if all else fails, I can fall back on the family. And some families begin to break apart underneath the strain of trying to make ends meet. You have men who are in the streets. Many of them that are used to working and supporting families have difficulty coping with the inability to find jobs. You have signs posted telling men there's no jobs here. Keep going. These men are about 300,000, quote, hobos wandering the country anything from rail cars, and there's no federal system of direct relief, there's no cash or food from the government that can help them, and they are left pretty much to fend for themselves. And that's not to mention the women that are experiencing and going through troubles here, that are struggling to survive. They have been the home- homemakers, they have been the ones who have been budgeting for homes and living on whatever income the man brought in, and buying food food and uh, sewing clothes. Now women have to work outside the home. They resent, they're resented by the unemployed men because they're seen as a woman taking a job from men who need to support their family. Many of the women are suffering in silence. They're ashamed to stand in bread lines because they don't want to embarrass their husbands. The children's are, children are suffering. They have poor diets. Health care leads to serious health problems in children. They also the lack of tax revenue leads to shortened school years and schools start to close. Teenagers decide there's nothing to do here, so let's leave home and ride trains and just search for work and adventure and anything that we can find. From, the eight, from 1929 to 1932, the suicide rate begins to go up by 30%. Admissions to state mental hospitals triple. People give up on health care. They give up on college. They put off marriage. They put off children. There's a stigma that never goes away with poverty, and it doesn't disappear and financial security becomes the goal for most Americans' families. Many others will still continue to show great kindness to strangers and develop this habit throughout the Great Depression that they'll carry with them um, and pass down to their children of being frugal and learning how to live with less um, and thriving on it. And so with all of these problems, we come down to what should the government do, if anything, to help people out? If the government's number one function is to provide people with safety and security, does that also require the government to give them safety and security financially and economically? President Herbert Hoover tells Americans that the economy is sound, but many experts believe the depression is just a normal part of business cycle and we will come out of it. Hoover also believes the government should foster a cooperation between competing groups. For example, instead of competing with the company of producing the same thing, but actually work together to not put other people out of business. He believes that people should take care of their own families and not depend on the government to bail them out. And Hoover begins to take cautious steps. He calls meetings of businessmen, banking, labor leaders to solve problems. He creates organizations to help charities raise money for the poor. He also initiates the building of Boulder Dam, which will become Hoover Dam on the Colorado River. It's a massive project. It provides electricity as well as flood control to the water and the states on the river basin. Needless to say, even though Herbert Hoover does more than any president before him with putting his hands into the economy, for the American people, it's not enough at this time. As you can see on the graph here, the unemployment rate spikes in 1930 to unbelievable rates. In 1930 as well, Hoover and the Republicans get blamed for the woes of the country. Democrats win the House. The Republican Senate majority is cut down to one vote. Farmers try to create food shortages so that they can raise prices. There's widespread criticism of Hoover in shanty towns called Hoovervilles. Hoover continues to try to work though. He negotiates agreement between private entities. He backs a federal farm board um, hoping to organize farm cooperatives. They want to buy back crops and keep crops off the market until prices rise to help give relief to farmers to let them make more money. They get. He works to get large banks to establish a national credit corporation. He also works with direct intervention. The Federal Home Loan Bank Act lowers mortgage rates. The Reconstruction Finance Corporation is an emergency fund for businesses. Hoover's measures don't improve the economy enough before the election, and although Hoover, like I said before, did more than any president before him as far as getting his hands in the economy to try to correct the economy. The American people look towards FDR to lead them out of it, and everything he does is considered not enough. And then there's the incident of the Bonus Army. The Patman Bill, um, which was supposed to pay support to veterans of World War I, and veterans show up in D.C. in 1932, to support the bill and they want the payment of their bonuses. Hoover opposes the bill. The Senate votes the bill down. Most veterans leave Washington but about 2,000 stay to, in hopes of speaking to Hoover. Hoover calls for generals to put down and disband the bonus army. Hoover fears the violence and he disbands. They tear gas with the infantry over a thousand people including children. Many are injured. The public is stunned and outraged by the government's actions against these people. And it should come as no surprise that President Herbert Hoover, in the election of 1932, has pretty much no chance of winning. By 1932, it is shaping up to be a non-contest between whoever the Republicans nominate, in this case Hoover, versus who is coming onto the scenes as setting himself up as the savior of the nation, ready to do whatever it takes to beat What is the Great Depression? That's Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And we'll continue with that when I see you in class.